We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Well, welcome. This is Hampton Keithley and Bob Brandon, and we are continuing our book review of Evolution's Achilles Heels. How are you today, Bob? I'm good, Hampton. How are you? Oh, good. I'm wearing my jacket inside because my office is above the garage. You know, I noticed that. What kind of temperature? <laughs> you, what kind the, of temperature? Cold air kind of cold air emanates from the floor. Oh my gosh! Well, what what's it, what is it outside there? Oh, it's only like 40, 42. So. Okay. Yeah, you're getting down there. Yeah, we well. My we little thing. the lettuce garden yesterday because it was 30. So, okay. My little temperature thing on my computer says four degrees. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but it's a dry cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm nice and snug and warm. Thank, thank God for a home. Well, before we, well, we, today we're going to cover chapter six, which is radiometric dating and uh, maybe seven on cosmology. Okay. So do you have anything you want to start with before we get going? I do. As usual, I want to prepare us with such a central passage in all of the Bible. You know, a central passage um I almost hesitate to use that term because it almost makes it sound like there are some scriptures more important than others. You mean like the but red I, letter ones? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, may, maybe there are some scriptures more. I don't want to minimize anything. It's all the word of God, but central in that um, just foundational so many theological ideas. Right. This is just so, so important, right? Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they're understood through what has been made. So people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their senseless hearts were darkened. 
although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. <laughs> so we'll, we'll stop there. Um, boy, that's just so foundational to so many theological concepts. Yeah, and it's ironic because um, yesterday we visited a church with some friends and they had a guest speaker from Estonia and he grew up in a communist atheistic society and he said his his journey was looking at creation realizing there had to be a creator and then basically praying to this unknown creator and saying show show yourself to me and, and so he found the truth and that was his yeah, so, starting point so god honored that request yeah <clears throat> very yeah. good very good oh, so the first well, chapter six is radiometric dating by Dr. Jim Mason, a PhD in experimental nuclear physics. So that sounds like a smart guy. I know. I don't. His name, though, so common. Jim. Remember our last guy had that Tasman. Yeah, Tasman. Like <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I wanted to read the introduction because yep, there's a really too. good summary of the previous chapters. Well, let me tell you what I wrote down on the introduction. Good summary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Great minds think alike. So there you go. You want to read it? No, you go for it. Okay. As, uh, why is a consideration of radiometric dating important? Is the subtitle. As we have seen from the preceding chapters, evolution has not one, but many Achilles heels, each pierced by a deadly arrow. I like that analogy. <laughs> uh, biology reveals that the cell is irreducibly complex, so could not have formed gradually by chance from inanimate molecules. Genetics reveals that the alleged engines of evolution, mutation, and natural selection corrupt and destroy genetic information rather than create and enhance it. Evolutionary paleontology fails to demonstrate the many transitional forms it predicts. Rather, their absence speaks as loudly as it did in Charles Darwin's day. Uniformitarian geology has given way to recognition that cat catastrophes have played a significant role in Earth's past. And this matches Noah's flood. As a result, the grand tapestry of evolution is unraveling from all sides. Evolution relies on long ages as an enabling prerequisite to allow enough time for the accumulation of the many changes needed to give rise to higher species. While the Bible clearly teaches through its chronological data that the earth is around 6,000 years old, radiometric dating is alleged to provide conclusive proof that the world is 4.5. Five, four billion years old, but that's the currently accepted value. Even in an age when many evolution, in an age when many question evolutionary theory, its corollary of millions and billions of years often remains an unchallenged icon in the debate about origins. The average layperson thinks that science can prove such things as the age of a rock, a fossil, or even the earth. Consequently, radiometric dating is of paramount importance to evolutionists. As other areas of science increasingly give evidence that evolution is flawed, increasingly 
radiometric dating is called on to provide the long ages that seemingly discredit the Bible. Alas for evolution, radiometric dating does not yield the support evolution needs. So. Yeah, yeah. So it was a, a very good summary. You can see how in in every key area of the debate, the evolutionary view is lacking. Remember our paradigm, right? You sit at your desk. On the left side of your desk is the ancient Earth, four four plus billion years old, and evolution. On the right side of your desk is much younger earth probably at the outside 10,000 years old and creation and every verifiable data point that we can establish fits that right hand model it fits the creation model right so, so some of the data does fit the evolution model like like there is um mutation in our genetics that that's part of the evolutionary model but it doesn't accomplish what they think it accomplishes right right so, so some of the data does fit the evolution model but but not much of it and and the data that doesn't fit is glaring right so well so the first section is what is radiometric dating and so i'm gonna try to yeah simple and it's yeah. used to measure the age of rocks as opposed to carbon dating, which is uh, fossils and and plants. Yeah, living things. Yeah, dead right. living, th dead things so, that were alive. Yeah, and the theory is that 50% of some radioactive parent element like uranium transforms into a daughter element over a period of time, like over into lead. And that's four and a half billion right. years for half of it to convert. And so that's yep. the half-life. And so if you find something that is three-fourths lead and one-fourth uranium, then that's two half-lives or nine billion years. Is that, yep. is that right? Yes. So then they yes. have different times for different elements. Um they decay at different rates. Right. So, well, they transform at different rates. Yep. And so, they'll, they'll have this LX element is 1.2 billion years half life, or rubidium dystrontium is 49 billion years for the half life, that kind of stuff. So, it sounds real scientific and they've got formulas and all that. But then the next section he has is how well does it work? Right. <laughs> So uh -huh. to, see, to see if it works, you would need to date some rocks that you know the age of. And so they right. they took some lava from uh, a volcanic eruption in New Zealand that happened, I guess, in 49, 54, and, and in 1975. And yep. so they, they dated those rocks, and they came up with some dates that said they were less than 270,000 years old was the closest one yeah up to three and a half million years old okay. yeah and they Which know is, it's not more than 50 years old yeah and they know it's not yeah and so i thought it was funny the way he put it, it goes they were technically correct because the rocks were less than two hundred and seventy thousand years old 50 years is yeah. less than two hundred and seventy thousand years but the dates were not particularly helpful so 
no little and then they did the same thing with the lava from mount saint helens that happened in 1984 and they got similar you know outlandish ranges of dates and that reminded me of uh, a story i've got my a friend named joe martin and he wrote a book called the evolution of a creationist and you can download it for free from his website but it's uh, biblicaldiscipleship.org, which I help him run. But he was a dentist for the a lot of folks in NASA in the late 60s. And he was in the military. He was actually, I think, Air Force One dentist, a crew dentist, then NASA's dentist. And um, so in the early 70s, we, they started, they dated the age of the moon rocks. They They used to think they were four to four and a half billion years old and then they dated them and then they adjusted their dates for the moon rocks to be from three to four and a half billion years old and so job i guess i'm thinking you don't just normally pick up the phone and call somebody from nasa you know and ask a question (laughs) so i'm thinking this must have been one of his um patients yes so he calls him up and this is the conversation when the first moon, well, this is what he wrote in his book. When the first moon rocks were dated in the early 1970s, NASA published the age of the moon rocks at four to four and a half billion years. And several years and many rocks later, they published a range of dates for the rocks of our moon from three to four and a half billion years. The author, Job, called one of the geologists who dated those rocks. And the conversation went something like this. Job, I noticed that in a recent news release that the dates of the moon rocks have been adjusted to a range of one and a half billion years. That's a pretty big difference in the dates. Was the range any greater than that? Oh, yes, said the NASA guy. The range went from several thousand years to over 20 billion years. Joe asked, well, then why did NASA only publish the one and a half billion year range instead of the 20 plus billion year range? And the guy says, well, we didn't want to confuse the public. We know the moon is about three to four and a half billion years old. So we called the dates outside that range discordant dates and threw them out. And Job's comment was assumptions determine conclusions. And some scientists must have predecided or assumed that the moon was three to four and a half billion years old before any rocks were ever brought back from the moon. That was one of the events that was his started his journey from he actually was a biology professor at the School of Dentistry here in Dallas. And and uh, so he was teaching evolution and these kinds of things kind of made him wake up and realize there's problems. Yeah, that's good. You know, and I mentioned that biology book from my my found from my kids high school or college i can't remember which but early on page 32 they've got a whole couple pages of radiometric and carbon dating and the math formulas and exercises for the students to do to do the calculations and you know it's just indoctrination it it is why why you know back to our illustration on the desktop why does the left-hand illustration, you know, the ancient universe, the ancient earth, why do um, evolutionists cling to that tooth and nail? 
they don't like the alternative <laughs> well <clears throat> indeed but they have to have that because in their proposal evolution takes millions and millions of years right so they have to have that so uh most of the things that you're going to see published like like your comment in the, in that guy's book they're very aware of how the public will receive certain information we've we've used this illustration a number of times i think it's so helpful hampton bear with me i'm a coach you know coaches repeat things <laughs> so <laughs> so when the news reports for instance police violence and an officer shoots a black citizen, they will say a white police officer shot a black citizen in you know Atlanta, wherever it was. That's how they report that. If a black officer shoots a black citizen, they don't report it that way. They say a police officer shot a black citizen in Atlanta. But they've said so many times a white officer has done this that you just assume the officer was white. Yeah. The actual data is the opposite. It is four times more common for a black officer to shoot a black citizen. But you would never get that idea from listening to the news. So the way evolutionists report uh, data, you know, T-Rex, oh, 70 million years old. You're going to hear that every time it's presented. It's not the case. They just have to have that because there could be no theory of evolution without um, extremely long years for the Earth and the universe. But it's not borne out by the science. There, there are almost countless presuppositions that go into what we read about how they radiometric date things well that, yeah right? I the biggest... some of those assumptions yeah okay you know, like they, Go ahead. they assume that there's no daughter element present in the rock at the time. off the get-go yeah right so it they, they assume there was none at the beginning yeah right. they, they assume that the rock remained a closed system since the time of its okay. formation so no parent element has been deposited in or removed from the rock no daughter element was deposited in or removed from the rock. They assume the rate of transformation, the half-life has always been constant. You know, nothing right. in the past would have changed that. And so it's they, they have false assumptions that make them right. be off. But and and they actually reject, uh, they say that their their system just doesn't work with the age of rocks that we know the age of it only works with rocks we don't know the age of. <laughs> oh, how, i was how trying convenient. to think of i mean i'm like how in the world that i mean your that's your calibration you know of your method if right. your calibration is off by 20 billion years you know how it's kind of like i was thinking about an analogy if i'm out on a grill a steak and i pull out my meat thermometer that's you know shows me the temperature in two seconds and I stick it in my steak after about 10 minutes and it says 60 degrees. And then I stick it in another section and it says 6,000 degrees. And I stick <laughs> it in another section and it says 600 degrees. And then I stick it in another and it says 130. And I go, okay, it's done. 
I mean, what should I do with that thermometer? I think I should throw yeah, it away. Right. It get a new one. Yeah, get a new one. A new thermometer. So, anyway. Yeah, there's so just so, and those assumptions, you know, let's just clarify. If that assumption is wrong, it doesn't mean your date's going to be wrong by 10 years. Your date could be wrong astronomically. Yeah, I was trying to think of right. another analogy, like with a rifle. If you sight it in and it's a inch high on and an inch left at a hundred <laughs> yards, it's going to be, as I understand it, three inches high and three inches left at three hundred y- yards. That's a linear um, mm-hmm. er- margin of error. Mm-hmm. This is not linear. This is exponentially off exponentially off but then yeah. he also goes to the next i mean step. the idea go ahead go ahead oh, i was just gonna well move. i was just gonna say i was just gonna say the idea of trying to do that is i understand the idea but you gotta understand the the limitations you just can't make those assumptions you know especially you know i've used this analogy a number of times but when they assume that there was no daughter material at the beginning of uh, the creation of a rock. Well, let's use this analogy again. Imagine you were at the creation event on the sixth day when God made Adam. You were hiding behind a rock. Then there was no Adam. And then, boom, there was Adam. How old would you say Adam was? (laughs) I mean, he's five seconds old and he looks like he's 30. That's a grown man. Yeah, or and trees. Yet, if you cut down a tree the day after God created it, would it have rings? Right. 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 So that assumption that there's no, you know, that things were created in this pristine, like no decomposition state, I don't, that's a bad assumption. And it's also a terrible assumption that it's always decayed at a constant rate. You, that that to me is the worst assumption at all. Yeah, he, all. He, he mentions that. We'll get into that in a second. And carbon dating, oh, okay. isochronic okay. dating is sometimes appealed to as being better. And he has okay. a really. I found that to be a very complicated section, a, yeah. a lot of math and all kinds of stuff in there. But it shows that he knows what he's talking about. But I'm not sure I can understand. Right. But his he kind of concludes that section on isochronic dating by saying, despite sounding like it solves all the problems, isochron dating gives even worse results than the other techniques for rocks of known ages and widely discordant ages for the same rock when using different transform chains. This clearly indicates that the assumptions behind isochron dating are incorrect. There you go. So So what's the one we, uh, well, do you want to get to, you know, if it's so scientific, why doesn't it work? <laughs> do you want to do that or do you want to jump to uh, carbon dating? Um, well, go ahead. Is that before carbon dating? Yes. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Did you have, um, you wanted to read? Well, maybe a little bit of it. So it, it's the section is titled if it's so scientific, why doesn't it work? That's a good title because um, remember one of our core values that we set out for our podcast was there's good science 
there's bad science. Right. But science in and of itself is not definitive. It can be, but it's on, on the surface to hear a scientific fact, you, I wouldn't necessarily accept that. You you got to look at it a little more clearly. You know what I mean? You got to understand what's really going on there. There's good science, there's bad science. So the sec the title of this, if it's so scientific, why doesn't it work? That's a good, that's a good title. So have, you know, the first full paragraph on page 205. Additionally, all radiometric dating techniques assume that the half-lives of the transformations involved have remained constant at today's values throughout the entire history of the rock. Although this assumption may seem much more likely than the others, recent discoveries indicate that the transformation rates of these following um, minerals and so on vary in conjunction with variation in solar activity. It also varies in relation to water, by the way. And if there was once a great flood, all those dates are so skewed. It's ridiculous. Um, Thus, it's clearly possible that this assumption could also be wrong. This is supported by the finding of scientists working on, you know, all these different projects. Next paragraph. Since the calculations of age are quite sensitive to these assumptions, and since it's clear that we cannot know if the assumptions are true, and in fact, I would, I would argue there, but they're not definitely not true. Right. And since radiometric dating produces wildly incorrect results for rocks of known ages, it's quite reasonable to conclude that radiometric dates are entirely unreliable. If a 50-year-old rock can be radiometrically dated as 3.9 billion years old, how do we know? I that? like I like the plus or minus ten percent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. How do we know it's that? Little, another... I think it's a, a little deceiving to to throw out these little number like three point nine and plus or minus ten percent and forget the number of zeros <laughs> that they're talking about. You know, that's a huge variation. Indeed. So his conclusion was, how do we know that another rock radiometrically dated as 4.54 billion years old is not actually about 6,000 years old, right? So there it is. Now that's not from, those statements are not coming from a swim coach, okay? This guy is uh, Dr. Mason came to his PhDs in experimental nuclear physics. He came to the CMI after a long career in the defense industry. His background in nuclear physics and experience in electronics led to a position as vice president of engineering, chief technology officer for Canada's leading defense electronic system integration companies. You know what I mean? That's not coming from Joe on the street. That's coming from a guy inside that scientific world. And he's saying, it's ridiculous. 
Yeah, I thought the next paragraph was good where he says, while scientists who adhere to billions of years perspective can construct explanations for the discrepancies between the real known ages and the incorrect radiometric ages, these are after the fact explanations constructed when it becomes known that the measured results do not agree with reality. Right. That's a good choice of words, reality, right? Isn't that um, one of the ways we describe there's only one reason to believe the Christian faith? Because it's true. That is, it corresponds to reality. (laughs) So, right. Good. That's right. Good paragraph. The next section was carbon dating. That's an important one because you hear about that all the time. You do. And, and, it's used to measure the age of plants and animals, which are carbon-based life forms. So when they die, the carbon eventually disappears, or I guess it goes from C14 to C12 or vice versa. I, I never did quite get that right, but um, but that can tell you how long ago the thing died. Yep. And, um, you know, we talked about oil and gas not being from fossil fuels last time. But mm-hmm. perhaps coal is, and but I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting. he said he does say accepting that coal is formed from buried vegetation. So, you know, is, is that debatable? Mm-hmm. You know, he's going to assume yeah. he's going to assume that right. for the sake of argument. Um, but he said that geologists had several samples of coal they had dated it as between 37 and 318 million years old again that's such a huge range it's useless um there should have been no carbon left but there was and so they dated the coal as being um, 45 to 60,000 years old so 45 to 60,000 is a whole lot less than 37 <laughs> to 318 million but it's, al- it's also longer than the biblical 6,000 years or the 4,500 years since the flood and so right. what do we what do we do with that you know because yes and he said that um things like the pre-flood atmosphere would have had different levels of c14 and c12 than today mm-hmm. and um which would have accounted for how much lush vegetation got buried if that's how the coal was formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said the C14 and C12 would have been dur- during the flood year as all the plants are buried in the water, that would have caused the ratio mm-hmm. to be different. And after the flood, there was stronger earth magnet. Well, or there was just stronger earth magnetism in the past or magnetic magnetism of the earth is is decreasing and so that higher magnetism would have caused fewer cosmic rays and slower c14 production and so those kinds of differences in the the rate could easily account for the difference between you know a five or six thousand year date and a fifty thousand year date right mm-hmm. but it mm-hmm. there's no way to account for the difference between that in 300 million years mm-hmm. so yeah that, that's kind of what i took away from the carbon dating yeah very very similar to um 
the radiometric dating with the other chemicals, um, the other elements. It's, decay does not happen at a constant rate. You have no idea what the ratios were in the initial state. And it's, it's a guessing game. And, yeah, and I think he said, and he said that the scientists will come up and say, "Well, it was contaminated." Yeah, yeah. But anything that diamonds, fit diamonds their model. also test the same age, and diamonds are not. You can't contaminate a diamond; it's too hard. Right, and it tests this within those same parameters. Right, right. You can get it into the thousands, and then with some, you know, likely assumptions. Not far-fetched assumptions, but some likely ones. You get it down to about six thousand. Yeah. So, you know, it again just perfectly fits the creation model. It's directly contrary to the evolution model. Yeah. So then helium also they can. Yeah, they think they can test with helium. Yeah, well, helium's produced when uranium transforms to lead. Yep. And it's so small that just like it escapes from your birthday balloon, <laughs> it escapes from the the zircon crystals that are formed. And so if the zircon crystals are one and a half billion years old, like the geologists claimed, then there would be no helium, but there is. And so it turns out measuring the amount of helium leads to the 6,000 year age, actually. There you go. The same story in every one of these examples, right? Fits the creation model, hand in glove, doesn't even come close to fitting the evolution model. Right. Well, my, so, my I guess, concluding thoughts is it seems to me that the whole scientific dating process is a total farce, you know? Yeah. Um, and despite all the math, we already said this, despite all the math formulas, it's not scientific, and, you know, there's a lot of gaslighting that goes on with, you know, the fossil record, the geologic record. But, um, you know, we've already said this natural selection. There's a little bit of truth that species adapt. Um, right. Genetics and DNA. I can understand that people might believe there, you know, could be beneficial mutations, even though we now know there aren't. <clears throat> um, right. But, you know, this whole... Um, dating process is it's fairly modern science you know it's not 150 year old year old ignorant black box science right and so to me it just seems a more flagrant lie that they're just making this stuff up and they know it yeah and, and that was one of the reasons i wanted to read that it. that nasa guy we didn't want to confuse the public oh exactly and they're doing it because they have to have that for their model. Yeah. If they lose, if they lose the dating game, so to speak, you can just throw everything in the trash. I mean, you could anyway, but the dating game is so definitive, and they have to have. Let's just read his conclusions because it's thought through. Okay. I, I think he gives a pretty good <clears throat> evolution. He says, "What can we conclude?" Evolution needs millions slash billions of years. Needs that. Has to have that. Radiometric dating is alleged to provide unequivocal proof that the Earth is 4.54 billion years old. However, as has been shown, 
radiometric ages are unreliable. And this is irrespective of whether these are whole rock, mineral model ages, or isochron ages. First bullet point, whole rock model measurements of Mount St. Helens lava dome formed in 1984 give an average of 350,000 years. That's from, <laughs> I don't want to belabor that. People get that. While mineral model ages range from 340,000 years to 2.5 million years, depending on which mineral within the rock is used. Whole rock, second bullet point, whole rock ages for lava flows from Mount, I don't know how you say that, Hampton, Angoraho. In New Zealand, formed from 1945 to 1975, range up to 2.5 million years, and isochron ages for these same rocks range from 133 million to 3.9 billion years old. And we know the ages of those rocks, right. and they're 50 years old. I'm just rounding off. And they're saying 3.9 billion by that technique. And I'm supposed to believe that because I'm supposed to believe science? Not a chance. In all cases, the claimed experimental error is just a few percent. Therefore, while these ages may be precise, they're all wrong. In some cases, by a factor of about 80 million. Radiocarbon, which should be undetectable after about 90,000 years, is found in abundance in coal, allegedly ranging in age from 35 million to 315 million years, and in diamonds, allegedly one to three billion years old. Let me emphasize that sentence. It, the way carbon decays, you shouldn't find any C14 if the evolution model is true. You shouldn't find any. There, there wouldn't be any after 90,000 years. Right. <laughs> well, they're finding a lot of it. Well, why? Well, because it's not 90,000 years old. <laughs> That's why. <laughs> so, moreover, the amount of radiocarbon in both the coal and the diamonds is approximately the same, indicating that they were all formed at about the same time. So taking into account the amount of normal carbon, C12, buried during the global flood to form the coal, the amount of low radiocarbon CO2 released through volcanism during the flood year, the massive reabsorption of carbon during the formation of rocks, we expect a dramatic change in the ratio of radiocarbon to normal carbon. Thus, the measured levels of C14 are compatible with a true age for the coal of only about 4,500 years, the approximate length of time from the global flood to the present as derived from the biblical texts. Furthermore, the amount of radiogenic helium found in zircons formed at depth combined with the measured value of the rate of diffusion of helium through zircon indicates that these crystals are just 6,000 plus or minus 2,000 years old. In summary, radiometric dating does not provide the unequivocal support for the millions and billions of years required by evolution. In fact, 
radiometric dating provides evidence for a much younger Earth in line with the history recorded in the Bible. Well, and I would like to say that the helium measurement is the scientific measurement. That's the closest one. That's and the most solid the one, one. And it's the one that works. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but they it has the less the least amount of assumptions. Yeah. 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 And it gives you a biblical date, not an evolutionist date. And I don't know who figured out the helium dating. Was it a creation scientist or you know an evolutionary scientist? And I don't know. And, I don't know. Um Probably some guy at a birthday party, right? <laughs> yeah. So, what? Where does this lead? Yeah, to cosmology. Yeah, the next section. So, this one. How do you want to handle this next one? Um, by the way, remind me before we wrap up today. I've got a funny joke for you. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, Doctor Hartnett. PhD in physics, University of Western Australia. Um, Cosmology, chapter seven is cosmology exposing the Big Bang's fatal flaws. Yeah. Um, So in 1929, Edwin Hubble discovered what is called Hubble's Law. And I guess that looking through the telescope, you saw red shifts of the, you know, stars. Mm-hmm. And I guess that meant that they were moving away from you. Yep. And so they calculated that the universe was expanding, which if it was expanding, then that means it had a beginning because it couldn't have been expanding infinitely in the past. Yep. So that hence the the Big Bang theory. There you um, go. So he points out that um, everything in it related to cosmology is philosophical yep. and and imaginary and theory, and it's not a true science because you can't do experiments and measure your, you know, test your theory. We only have one universe. So you can't compare our universe to the next door universe, you know? Yeah. Right. So, so I thought that was a really uh, interesting thought. Um, And, and then he gets into an idea I, I I couldn't follow some of this, but it's like the the Big Bang theory is really accepted by all scientists or yes. almost all scientists, kind of like you know old Earth and uh, evolution. Yeah, but it sounds like they're discovering things that show that perhaps um, the Earth is at the center of the universe and it's not expanding and. Can you explain that better than no, I can? <laughs> no, no. What? It, let me just read some. That, that's a good summary. Let me read some of what he's saying, um, because 
in some sense, Hampton, you can really get into the swamp with this stuff, but you don't need to if you just read some of his basic stuff. So let, let me just re-emphasize the points you made, but I'm going to put them back in his words. Okay. Okay. So this is uh, page 217, Cosmology, the Philosophy. Even though he derided the idea of a Big Bang, Hoyle was an atheist and believed in an eternal universe without beginning or end. The model that now bears his label, the Big Bang, has an origin in time and has become the dominant worldview of the majority of the scientific community. He's a very important, here's a very important and crucial point. The Big Bang theory is accepted a priori as the correct description for the origin and structure of the universe. The mathematical model that the, describes the expansion from a singularity at the Big Bang to the present is believed to be the correct history of the universe. The irony is that an absolute beginning ex nihilo points to a transcendent cause of the universe beyond space and time. Yet most proponents of this worldview today are on the atheist side of the debate. Thus, many Big Bang believers have sought to find a naturalistic cause to the universe. Once one understands the philosophical nature of the issue, however, all objections raised to date against the cosmogony described in the first chapters of Genesis cannot be sustained, as explained below. So, you know, all those, you can get lost in the swamp of explanation, but the conclusion is they know the universe had a beginning. Well, you can only conclude one logical thing from that, can't you? If it had a beginning, it has to have had a beginner. Right. That, that is the only only thing you could reasonably conclude a thing cannot cre create itself if there was once nothing absolute nothing then there wouldn't be anything today but there is something <laughs> so there had to be an uncaused create eternal creator that's romans one it has to be that way so they they know it had a beginning so, and that, that's the reason Hubble's important, or Hoyle and Hubble, those guys, because they can see it expanding. Well, that means it had a beginning. So, everything kind of falls from there. Have you ever um, heard of the anthropic coincidences? Well, I've heard of the anthropic principle. So, so what's your, what's your, I think so, goes it's by just that all of the measurements that they take of distance from the, for the earth, distance from the sun, the tilt of the earth, the magnetic field, the, you know, the mix of oxygen and nitrogen in the air and all that different yes. stuff. Yes. Fine tuned for human life and carbon based life. And so, you know, they haven't found that in any other 
planet in any other galaxy right in any of that kind of stuff so um it seems that the earth was designed just for man anthropos okay so uh, that's right that's a good explanation of that but it's um it kind of leaves out just how precise those things are you know like the charge on an electron the charge on a proton the weak nuclear force the strong nuclear force all those kinds of things they have to be within a range that's infinitesimally small they they have to be exact in other words or life as we know it would not exist so a common illustration to explain all that is, you know, imagine a, a giant control room and you're in there and there's all these banks and banks and banks of computers. And with with the computers are, you know, the requisite dial that the setting needs to be correct for all these different factors. And all of them are dialed in just exactly right. What are the chances of that? Right. <laughs> zero and yet they're all exactly right and so you you can address that philosophically i guess in different ways but the most common conclusion from that is you had a creator who knew exactly what he was doing let's see if i can find a, a quote from arno penzias uh he's a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Oh, here we go. The best data we have are exactly what I would have predicted had I nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. <laughs> That's his way of describing right, the creation model. Mm -hmm. He goes, the best data we have fits that exactly. That, that's a Nobel winning physicist. Right. So I, it's, I found one quote. He, he quoted a uh, guy says, cosmology may look like a science, but it isn't a science, says James Gunn of Princeton University, co-founder of the Sloan Survey, currently the biggest large scale survey of millions of galaxies. It goes on to say a basic tenet of science is that you can do repeatable experiments and you can't do that in cosmology. Right. And so, you know, here's a guy who's would say I'm a scientist, you know, running the largest, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever, but he admits that it's not science. Well, it, and it not because they are not scientists, but because you can't. You, you can't do experiments. You can't in that field. So it's what you get is philosophy. And they, they come up with models and simulations and they run them yeah. on the computer. And yeah, and so no way. And those are only as good as the assumptions you programmed it for. Right. Right. Same, same as those models of, oh, the Corona spread. Oh, yeah. I was thinking the same thing. How many right? people are they going to kill? It was. You know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just so bogus. But um, rem remember one of our core values right these are why i have my core values by the way those didn't just pop into my head right those came after 40 years of looking at stuff like this and finally concluding uh the first thing a person will do for their worldview is lie 
so you see that in science if you know like your example with the paper that you read by joe martin mm -hmm. right the reason they used that one date is not because the data showed that it's because it comported with the previously accepted worldview that's it so they throw out all the other data that's all it's very common so there's good science there's bad science and the first thing a person will do for his worldview is lie. So the evolutionist, you know, is coming from a ingrained, hardcore worldview. And they're going to discard the data that doesn't fit their model because they have to have long ages in, in billions of years. Right. But the Another quote I wanted to read, he goes, one of, um, he said, astrophysicist Richard Liu of the University of Alabama in Huntsville wrote cosmology is not even astrophysics all the principal oh. assu assumptions in this field are unverified or unverifiable in the laboratory because the universe offers no control experiment i.e no independent checks it is bound to be highly ambiguous and degenerate and so our author goes to say, this seems a fair analysis because cosmologists today have invented all sorts of stuff that has just the right properties to make their theories work, but stuff that has never been observed in the lab. Things like the mysterious dark matter and dark energy. Lou says they have become comfortable with inventing unknowns to explain the unknown. And I'm trying to find, there's one other place. Um, yeah, let me read this too. Cosmologist Max Tegmark said, 30 years ago, cosmology was largely viewed as somewhere out there between philosophy and metaphysics. You could speculate over a bunch of beers about what happened, and then you could go home because there wasn't a whole lot else to do. <laughs> but now they are closing in on a consistent picture of how the universe evolved from the earliest moments to the present. How can that be true? This is the, our author now. How can that be true if none of Lou's five evidences can be explained by knowns? They are explained by resorting to unknowns with a sleight of hand that allows the writer to say, we are closing in on the truth. I recall Nobel laureate Stephen Chu speaking to a large gathering of high school children on the occasion of the Australian Institute of Physics National Congress at the Australian National University in 2005. He said that we now understand nearly all there is to know about the universe, except for a few small details, like what are dark energy and dark matter. The irony that, by his own statements, about 95% of the stuff in the universe is allegedly made of these would seem was seemingly lost on him. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's leave it there then, right? As long as everybody understands uh, when you hear these dates or when you hear cos cosmogony, that's all philosophy for cosmogony and the dates are nowhere near accurate. Right. So can I um, leave us with my joke? Okay. It has nothing to do with anything we've said. I just want to say it before I forget it. Okay. Okay. Do, do you know what is the fastest growing capital? What country has the fastest growing capital in the world? 
I don't. Ireland. Ireland? There's, there's is Dublin every day. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's a good one to end on. <laughs> okay. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. <laughs>